We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Uh, We previously have been working through Acts 2 and and spent several weeks looking at Peter's preaching and Peter's uh, sermon. Uh, Now we're in a section that is going to tell us what was the results of that and what was happening uh, in the early church. Uh, Let's read together the word of God. Uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, reading to the end of the chapter. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and di- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's start this morning with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, uh, that you would give us instructions, Lord, on how to behave, on how a church should look and act. And, and we ask for your grace and mercy to, to build these things into our church, that there would be a sense of the grace of God, that there would be an all and a wonder every week and as we gather regularly just in how uh, amazing you are, that your spirit would stir these things up in our heart. Give us, Lord, uh, courage of our convictions to stand on the things that matter uh, most to you. I pray this morning that you would give me uh, the words to say, that you would delight in in the preaching of your word, that it would come not with my authority, but as we open uh, the book of Acts, may we actually might see today and hear today uh, the word that is your word that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. There are, in our day and age, a lot of different things that people tell us uh, the church should do. Uh, Every now and then, I get a phone call at church and it's from some company from somewhere that tells us we have this great video series for you and you need to purchase this video series and we will send you uh, a six week review of the series and you can watch it and review it with your leaders. And then for whatever the fee is, it's some kind of like six months of nine ninety nine each or whatever it might be. If you purchase this series, we are seeing results in many churches that use this and we'd like to see this in your church. Uh, and you could you could literally take an entire year, uh, five years with all of the calls and all of the programs and all of the video series out there. Uh, and I would never have to teach anything. I could just come on a Sunday morning and press play and we could watch uh, whatever they have to tell us or we could do it for Sunday school. But the interesting thing is there is while there are many good tools out there that we can use, there is also a lot of confusion about what a church is. And what a church should do. And there's sort of in our culture a a chasing after the wind. That this church over here is doing that. And so everybody goes and they try and they try this because they say, well, it worked over there. Or we find out that this church grew to a large number doing such and such a program or such and such an event. 
And so everybody goes, ooh, we should try that. And we go over there and all the churches uh, begin to try that. And in some places it works and in some places it doesn't. I think each church is, because each church is in a unique location, there are certain things in, in culture that certain churches can do and be effective. But there is always, for every church anywhere, throughout church history, throughout America today, throughout the world, there is always a most basic bottom line that this is what a church needs to do. And rather than looking over here or over there or following this fad or that fad, the Word of God lays out for us what is a church to do? What's it supposed to do? What does a healthy church Look like many people have lots of things that they look for in a church. Many people have lots of things that they judge a healthy church by. What type of music does it have? Uh, Does the preacher stand in front of a pulpit or does he stand on an open stage is now sort of a a mark of whether you're an effective communicator. Uh, How many programs do you have? How many weekly services do you have? All of these things are things that people judge success by today. The Word of God here gives us six marks of what a church does and what a healthy church looks like. A number of years ago, a pastor wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, I found it to be very helpful, but in this passage, I only found six marks. So today, we are going with six marks uh, of a healthy church. You can find the other three uh, elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, but six things, then, this morning, a church does. And let me just kind of say as an aside, I tend to do like two-point sermons or three-point sermons. Uh, this week, you're getting a bonus. Uh, I got six uh, things that we're looking for, uh, but we're going to try to move through them a little faster. My wife always teases me. I spend uh, three-quarters of the sermon or half the sermon on the first point, and then the other two or three are crammed at the end. So if I feel like I'm rushed, I, I might be, because there, there are six things here we want, we want to try to get through. We're just going to try to do what we always do, and that's work through and say, what does the Word of God say, and what does it say to us today? So the first uh, mark of a church is a church devotes itself to the apostles' teaching, right off the bat in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When the early church gathered, they listened to the leaders, particularly the apostles, preach and teach the word of God. And it's not just that the apostles, although this is very true, it's not just that the apostles devoted themselves to teaching, it's that the people devoted themselves to hearing the Word of God. There are some circles today that this has just fallen out of favor with, that we would gather to hear the Word of God. In some places, people will say things like, well, a pastor is just up there giving a monologue, and that doesn't engage the crowd. And so we should have dialogue and discussion. There's nothing wrong, per se, with dialogue and discussion. You know we do that in Sunday school some. And please, if you have questions, feel free to ask me them. Or some of you, I know, shoot me an email if that's your way of communicating. 
And you said this in the sermon. What do you mean? We, we love that. We enjoy when we're wrestling with the Word of God. But the Word of God needs to be proclaimed. We need to gather together and, and read the passage and say, this is what the Lord says. Not merely a, well, what do you feel like today? But what does the Bible say? We need to devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching. The Apostles' teaching, of course, centered on the Gospel, on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason it says they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, the Apostles were the ones that the Lord Jesus appointed to be the authoritative witnesses. So Ephesians chapter 2 says when the church is being built, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus ascends up into heaven, and, and who does he leave behind as his first authoritative witnesses? Jesus is building one big house, one big building, the church, and, and Jesus Christ dying and rising again, that is the cornerstone, the anchor that he lays his church on. But then, so we might have a faithful understanding of the Word of God, and even as the, the church develops, we might have the rest of the New Testament written, Jesus gives apostles and prophets so we might have the Word of God and understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's like laying footers. It's like laying the, the foundation of the house. And so for 2,000 years we have been building this one church and God is building His church and in various locations local churches pop up and He's putting those on top like, like blocks on the footers of the foundation. But at the core, at the root, is this commitment to Jesus Christ and what the apostles have taught us in bringing the Word of God to the whole church. When Paul went to Thessalonica, uh, one of the towns where he planted a church, he proclaimed the Word of God, and he writes them later on in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That when Paul, as an apostle, was proclaiming these things, he's not just telling them cute stories. He's not just saying, well, this is my opinion on things. He is actually, with the authority the Lord has given him, bringing the Word of God. And that Word of God now is, is written down in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, but particularly uh, the New Testament being formed by, in the early church, bringing to us today the Word of God. So that when we preach and teach, we're not gathering around to hear what a nice pastor has to say. We're gathering around with the expectation that, that someone, in this case today, the pastor, will take the Word of God, the Apostles' teaching that was written for us, at the authority of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and, and lay it out before us. That we're committed to being here, not because we want to hear cute stories or, or cute applications, but at the end of the day, we want to hear what does God say to me? 
What does God have for me? What is He instructing me to do? Commitment to the Apostles' teaching. I'm sure you've been seeing this week the big exciting news for some people is the Pope has visited uh, the U.S., uh, in fact, I was driving out on, on 83 the other day, uh, coming up right, right through York on 83, and I saw these signs, expect delays for the Pope's visit. And I'm like, all the way out here, for, this far from Philly and, and D.C., we're going to have traffic delays? Um, I don't know if we did. If you got stuck on 83, maybe it was because of the Pope. I, I don't know. But, but people are, are fawning over the Pope being here. And he's created little bits of controversy, and I've seen some in the news and some on social media about some of the things he says. And some people are like, oh, he spoke about global warming, how awful, how horrible. Uh, and yet sometimes what we forget, there is a big difference between the Pope and what he teaches and what the Word of God teaches. And one of these differences is, what is the Apostles' teaching? The Apostles' teaching is what is now put down in the Word of God for us, passed on in invisible writing for us. And the Roman Catholic Church for a number of years has said the Apostles' teaching includes not only what we have in Scripture, but what we have in our traditions. That Scripture and tradition, they would say, bear the same authority. And so that from Peter, they would say there has always been bishops and popes and and there has been this apostolic succession that that verbal teaching outside of Scripture has been passed down through the ages. And this is where they get some of their later doctrines. But listen to what they themselves say at the Second Vatican Council. Here there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scriptures. The successors of the apostles, sacred tradition, to the successors of the apostles, sacred tradition hands down or hands on in its full purity God's word, which was entrusted to the apostles by Christ, the Lord, and the Holy Spirit. We would agree that the Lord Jesus trusted the message of the gospel to the apostles when Jesus ascended. That's what's going on here in this passage. Where we would disagree is we would say that very clearly the authority is Scripture. And Scripture alone is the authority. That everyone since the time of the apostles needs to go back to the Word of God and say, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible alone is God's inspired word. Whereas the Pope and the Roman Catholics would say, well, we have the Bible, and that's good, but we have this apostles' teaching. And they mean more than just what's written here. But these other things that have been passed on that God didn't put into writing. And they would say, in effect, trust us and the tradition that we have passed on we would say, trust the Word of God as the Apostles' teaching. How then do we apply some of this to the church today? Well, beyond just knowing uh, our differences with uh, other uh, churches like the Roman Catholic Church, 
we need to recognize the distractions that we face in our day and age. We live in a day and age where, where the church is distracted to do all sorts of things beyond what's laid out for us in the Word of God. And Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Not preach tradition or preach uh, other things, but but preach the word. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. Uh, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away listening to the tr- from listening to the truth and wander into myths. I was watching the Today Show this morning a little bit, and uh, I don't know, have you heard about this blood moon thing uh, that's coming? Um, I have no idea what it is except that the moon turns red because it's closer to the earth. And that, that's the, the uh, features uh, in the physical world. But then there are some that are, that are getting all this hype. It's a, it's a blood moon and it's the end of the world and Jesus is going to return. And, and, and even though Jesus says no man knows the hour, people go, well, we know. because And, and it just becomes a following after myth. It just becomes a a gathering people around you just to hear what you want to hear rather than what does the word of God say? People will choose their church or choose their preacher or choose their pastor based on whether he's telling them what they want to hear, which isn't necessarily what the word of God would have them hear. We live in a day and age where the ears are tickled. We live in a day and age where the main thing, the gospel, isn't always the main thing in every church. There are lots of good things that a church can do and even should do. But the gospel and the preaching and teaching of the gospel is at the center. It's kind of like the core to your wheel. And there might be lots of other spokes that go out from there. But at the end of the day, it is all connected to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The apostles in Acts chapter 6 said that that they had to devote themselves to what? The preaching of the word and to prayer. And it's interesting that what arose was this controversy over certain widows not getting uh, enough food and having their needs met. And that was part of the church's job. But, but the apostles' main job was to focus on the Word. And so they delegated the other roles in the church outward. We need to have that same sort of approach, that same sort of focus. Let me just say this. Sometimes today, we assume we're devoted to the apostles' teaching but we don't actually make sure we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Sometimes we treat the truths of the Bible just as something we're going to check off on a doctrinal statement. Yes, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. But in particular, particularly with the next generation, with young children, with young adults, we need, those of us that have been Christians for a long time, we need to make sure 
that the people that are following us, that the people that are coming up, that the people that are going to be the next leaders in the church and are going to take over after we are gone, we need to pass those things on to them. That same love for the Lord, that same passion for the truth, that same understanding, making sure that they get it. D.A. Carson has said, what is assumed in one generation is lost in the next. Sometimes what happens in our day and age is we assume that the gospel is known. And so we go on and we talk about other things. Or we assume that we're all centered on the same thing. And so we say, well, now we've got to do a whole bunch of other things. And we never go back and check and say, is the gospel really the core? It would kind of be like driving in your car and not checking first to see if the engine is actually there. And just assuming that when I get in, it will be there. We can't assume that the gospel is there unless we're regularly preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel and helping people grow in their understanding of it. So that's the first thing this morning. The second thing is a church devotes itself to fellowship. Uh, we are the Bible Fellowship Church, and the running joke is that, that we are so good at fellowship, we like to eat uh, at, every, at every event. But look at the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship means uh, a close association involving mutual interests, uh, sharing. It means association. It can mean, in some contexts, communion. Uh, not just like in the communion table, but, but communion of, of getting together, of that closeness of relationships. In fellowship, there is love. In fellowship, there are, are bonds of connection. There is a, a unity, a togetherness. That, that when we walk in together on a Sunday, that there are no divisions, that there are no uh, secret bitternesses or a gossip where someone says, well, do you know what so-and-so did to me this week? Oh, well, that's an interesting story. Let me share with you. No, no, no. When there's fellowship, there is this connection and unity. And, and we might not all be the best friends with each other, but we are all together in Christ. And there is a friendship that goes deeper than just common interests or social events. Fellowship is when you can look someone in the eye and and really just ask them, how are you doing? You seem like you've had a tough week. Is there anything I can pray for you for? Is there anything I can do to help you out? When we're not just concerned with, with coming and sharing our own stories, but we're actually concerned with finding out what's happening in other people's lives. In the book of Galatians, we're told that the church should be bearing uh, with one another when they have needs. Uh, In the book of James, we we find out that we should confess our sins to one another, bearing one another's burdens. That is part of what fellowship looks like. Fellowship entails unity. Look at chapter 2, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Then uh, keep your finger in Acts 2 and flip over to Acts 4, uh, verse 32, describing the church again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, and no one said that any of the things they had belonged uh, to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was a sharing of possessions. There was this 
idea that we all are of one heart, of, of the same mindset when it comes to the Lord and Jesus Christ and His work. Uh, the book of Ephesians deals with this kind of unity a little bit. And one of the examples in the early church of the tensions that they had uh, in unity is you had Jews and Gentiles uh, getting together and suddenly they are all trying to work together, live together, and being part of the church together. Uh, it very much in, in that culture uh, was racial tension of a sort. Uh, that Jewish people from, from young, in the time they were born, were told these Gentiles are excluded and can't worship in the temple. And Gentiles would have probably felt that coming into the church, that, that tension. And Jesus says now, that, or Paul says now, that Jesus Christ is our peace. That Jesus Christ brings together these people of diverse backgrounds. Where there had been cultural tension, racial divide, if you will. It is brought together so that the people of God in Jesus... See, when we are focused on Jesus, that oneness flows from Him. That we all belong to Him. That we all believe the same thing. That that those of us that have been baptized, we've all been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This unity is something that transcends or goes beyond just a bunch of individuals getting together because they like each other. Fellowship revolves around the gathering together of God's people. And it did involve eating, believe it or not. We, we are in good church tradition when we gather for food and eat. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. But it's interesting in verse 42, it says not only that they were, not just that they were devoted to the activity of fellowship, they were devoted to the fellowship. That if you are a believer, the Lord calls us into commitment not only to himself, but a local gathering of like-minded believers, the fellowship, those that are gathering in, in right mind uh, and right heart together and ministering the Word of God. So that when Paul became a Christian, a number of years later, he, he met with Peter, James, and John. And it says in Galatians 2 that they extended him the right hand of fellowship. You see, no, no Christian is a, a lone wolf that can just go off on their own and maybe occasionally be around God's people. We are to be part of the fellowship where we gather together Christians around the Word of God, fellowshipping and, and sharing our lives. We are part of the body of Christ spiritually. Therefore, physically, we should live as part of the local body. So a healthy church, a mark of a healthy church is commitment to fellowship. The third mark of a healthy church is devotion to the Lord's Supper. It says they, uh, that the beloved themselves, yeah, excuse me, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship 
and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now, there's a little bit of debate here. What does breaking bread mean? There, there are basically three options. One, they got together for meals, just meals, just food. Uh, the second option is that part of this breaking of bread was they had communion and then they had some kind of fellowship meal. We see this in 1 Corinthians, that they also ate uh, after they had the communion meal. Uh, and then the third option is that it is only referring to the communion meal. I think it refers to the communion meal and the types of meals they had afterwards. That a church body needs to be devoted to celebrating the Lord's Supper but we should also not be afraid to gather and eat together. In our Western culture, eating together doesn't mean very much. We can rush into McDonald's, grab something, run back out. We can eat it on the road. But in the ancient world, sitting down with someone, eating together was this, this intimate act of being with another person. It said something. You didn't just eat with anybody. You ate with, with people you trusted, people you could share your lives with, people that belonged to the family of God you would eat with. In the book of Galatians, when there was all this tension going on between Jew and Gentile, there came a point in time where it says Peter stopped eating with Gentile believers. In other words, there were people who weren't Jewish, but they had believed that Jesus was their Lord and Savior and he was the Messiah. And yet they still never became Jewish. And some Jewish believers came in and they didn't like this. And they convinced Peter, you can't sit and eat with these people. By the Old Testament law, they're ceremonially unclean. Just like in the Old Testament, Joseph when he was in Pharaoh's court, he didn't eat with his brothers when they came in because Egyptians and Jews didn't have this table fellowship together. One would eat, and then they would serve the second part of the meal, and the other would eat. Table fellowship meant something. And when Peter stopped eating with Gentile believers, he was basically saying, you're not good enough. You're not the right kind of Christian. I don't love you like I love my other brothers over here. It was a way of dividing. And it was a way of showing spiritual consequences. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that as the people would gather, they would eat. And then he gives some warnings that, that they were eating and getting drunk. And one person would come and someone else would eat all the food. And there wouldn't be enough food and they would get hungry. And he says, so what? Do you not have houses to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then later on, he gives instructions. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when, he co when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things he says, I will give you directions later. What is Paul saying here? They would gather 
and they would celebrate communion. And, and in the book of Luke, it says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And that's where we get this idea of breaking bread being part of the communion meal, not just food. But some people would come and they would come so famished because they didn't want to eat any of their own food at home. They would go through, they would have communion and they would get to however, I don't know if they did potlucks or lines or how they served it, but, but they would, and I don't know if they even had plates, but if it was a modern day setting, they would fill their plate with everything. And you know how you tell your kids, don't, leave, don't take seconds yet or don't fill it, leave some for the next person. They didn't do that. They just they were like little children piling everything on where their eyes were bigger than their stomach. And then there's some poor person that comes through that can barely afford a regular meal. And they come through the line and there's no baked beans left or chicken or whatever they ate. And so one person has stuffed themselves to the gill because they're just being um, full of themselves. And another person comes through and is hungry. And it's like, you want to call that a fellowship meal? You couldn't even share the food that God provided. And you're making a mockery then because you've preceded this with communion. You're making a mockery of communion where you've just said we're all one in Christ. Communion is an act of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion is vital in the life of the church. It shows us visibly When we take this in, it reminds us of the faith that we have in Christ. And it shows us that the reason we do it together is it shows us that we're part of the body of Christ. That Christ didn't just die for me, but he died for all of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ. And so a healthy church that is preaching the word of God will also proclaim the word of God through communion. We tell people when we take communion that you should only take it if you're a believer. Hopefully, if someone is not a believer, they will see that they have a need of Jesus. Just as they know they have to eat physical food, we're reminded by taking communion that we need to believe in Jesus. To take in, as it were, what he's done for us. And that's what communion symbolizes our faith and trust in the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a healthy church does this because it grows us in our relationship with God. It grows us as part of God's family. There is no instance in the New Testament of an individual taking communion by themselves because it's part of the body of Christ. Fourth this morning, fourth mark of a healthy church, and these are a little less descriptive in the text, but uh, in verse 42, not only did they devote to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, they devoted themselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. The apostles later on in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. You know, I mentioned all of those Uh, organizations that put together these packets and these CDs and they try to give them to the church. I have never seen a packet. Maybe they are out there, but I've never seen a, a church growth model that led off with preach and pray. You can't make any money selling that because people just, well, that's already in the Bible. But how does the early church do it? The early church is growing like wildfire. The Holy Spirit is at work. Why is this happening? 
Because the people of God are dependent upon God in prayer. That's what prayer really does, right? Prayer shows that we need God and we're dependent upon Him. And we don't like that sometimes as an American. We have our job and we bring home our paycheck and we figure, I take care of myself. And maybe we sort of casually say, thank you, Lord, for this job. I appreciate it. But, but we particularly struggle when we get in these situations where we have to learn. I can't solve it all myself. I need God. Prayer is an act of dependence upon God. It's an act of reliance. Jesus gives us an example in the book of Luke of how prayer should work, that we should not lose heart when we pray. And so he gives an example of a, of a wicked judge who doesn't respect God and doesn't respect other men. He just has all the power and all the authority. And there's, it's a parable, but there's this woman who comes to him and she says to him and pleads with him, give me justice over my adversary. And she doesn't just ask him once. She shows up at his door or at his office or wherever he practices law every day, every week, countless times saying, I have this case. Give me justice. I have this case. Give me justice. And so in this parable that Jesus tells, the judge says, I'm not going to do this because I fear God. And God says, look after widows. I'm not going to do this, he says, because I fear man. But he basically says, I'm going to do this because this lady is annoying. So I'm going to answer her so that I get her off my back. It's not saying that when you pray to God, you're trying to annoy God and get him off your back. What it does say is that lady didn't lose heart. And there was a wicked judge who finally gave in because she didn't lose heart. How much more will a good and gracious God hear our prayers when we do not lose heart? That doesn't mean that our prayers can earn favor with God. That doesn't mean it's some sort of magical code that if we just repeat it a hundred times or two hundred times or however many, that God will automatically give it. God answers prayer according to his will. But what it does mean is that when you pray, do not lose heart. You pray one time and, and, and the temptation is, and I've been there, where you, you pray a couple times for something and you say, well, God didn't give it. I don't know why I pray. He knows what my prayer request is. I'm not going to bother repeating it because he's infinite. But when you repeat it and you pray again, and you do not lose heart over your prayer requests. You are continually, it, it does something to you in the way that your prayers come before God because you are continually in that act of prayer getting down on your knees and saying, God, I have to depend upon you. And it's not about shouting loud enough so that God hears our prayers. It's not about like God is so busy, he's got all these phone calls and emails and faxes of prayers coming in and, and, and once yours piles up enough, then he'll notice it. God is infinite and knows all things. But it's for our benefit that we remind ourselves regularly, I need to trust God. 
I hope you have that in your prayer life. And let me encourage you to to be diligent in prayer. And as a church, let me encourage you to be diligent in prayer. The church had been through a lot over the past couple years. And you prayed a lot for the Lord to work. And he did work. My family had been praying for an opportunity to serve the Lord for a while. And and we believe that God worked in bringing us here. And now that the past is behind us, we're excited about the future. But let me say this. Don't lose heart in praying for God to work in the church. Praying for our own growth, praying for our own efforts in reaching out is is not something that we just bring one time and then say, well, we didn't have anybody new this week. I guess we'll give up on that prayer request. Don't lose heart in prayer. Sometimes we think the Lord is slow when the Lord is actually working on his timetable. There have been many times I've prayed for something and I wanted it right then. And you, Lord, you've got to give it to me this week because that's when I need it, God. And he doesn't do it. But he shapes me. And he's patient with me. And he teaches me to be patient. That maybe I don't know what's best for me. And then when I get to the point where I'm ready to acknowledge that, he begins to answer my prayers. But he walked me first through this process so that I would learn that God knows what's best for me. Tim Bertolet doesn't have all the answers for Tim Bertolet and what he needs. But God does. And prayer is me saying that to God. And prayer as a church, a a church becomes healthy when it depends and relies more and more upon God. Church health, ultimately, is not judged by size. A small church isn't necessarily more healthy than a big church. A big church is not necessarily more healthy than a small church. A healthy church is a church that depends day after day, week after week, upon God to do the work. We can judge fruit by uh, outward standards. But God looks at the heart. Fifth this morning, we got two more quickly here. A church is marked by generosity. Look at verse 45 and 46. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received from the Lord with glad and generous hearts. You see this in Acts 6, the the widows are being taken care of, getting food because the people of God are generous. You see a negative example of this in Ananias and Sapphira. They have a piece of property and and they sell it and they bring the money. And, And it's not about them selling it or bringing the money. It's the way they presented themselves. You see, some people in the church were were selling their piece of property and giving all of the money to the church. And Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, you know, even when you sold that, the money was yours to do with what you want. So they could have just come and said, look, we sold our property and here's some of the money. But they pretended 
to make themselves look good, to win the accolades of the crowd, they brought this money in and they basically said, we sold our property and here's all of the money. Look at how we're giving everything we have to the Lord while they're secretly pocketing a large chunk for themselves. Nothing wrong per se with keeping some for themselves. It was theirs and God gave it to them. But to pretend that you're generous, that's when Peter condemns them for lying to the Holy Spirit. You see, true generosity is not about looking good or being showy in front of other people. True generosity is giving to the Lord what he's laid on your heart to give. Giving with a joyful heart. It's interesting. Sometimes pastors are told when and how they need to preach on giving. I had one person one time tell me, well, you need to make sure that every year you preach on giving or it just won't happen. And yet giving in this passage comes not because there's guilt trips being laid on the people of God. It comes from a generous heart. It comes because they've experienced the grace of God and the grace of God makes us generous. And not just with our money, but our our time and our love for others. There are some people that are very poor financially, but are very rich in giving their love and giving their time and sacrificing for other people. Let me just say two things. One, well, let me read for you a verse. The motivation for giving is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. They had a giving problem. And there was a poor church in Macedonia that was giving sacrificially. And Paul wants to see the Corinthian church grow in their generosity. But he says this, I say this not as a command. In other words, I'm not forcing you with a guilt trip what to give. But he says to prove your earnestness of others that your love is also generous. But Then he uses Christ as an example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Grace of giving overflows from the grace we have from God. When we understand the grace of God, how much Jesus gave up for us, It changes our perspective that we have a willingness to share what God has given to us so that we might be gracious to others. And it should be something that is natural, something that that bubbles over and is not out of guilt. Have you ever been around a a new believer? And have you ever been around, they're they're pretty much a brand new Christian, and and all they want to talk about is Jesus? To, to the point where like you go into uh, a McDonald's to get some burgers or something and, and they want to gab with everybody about Jesus and you're just like, shh, we just want food. We don't want to make a scene. But, but they are excited and it just, it just bubbles over and there is just this joy and they can't keep themselves quiet. This is what giving looked like in the early church. It was no one was saying, well, you better sell all your property. No one was saying, well, this is how much you have to give. It was just we love God. 
And because we love God and we, we see this grace, you know what? You have a need? You know what? Don't worry about it. I, I got your back. The question then for us is what is in our heart when we give? The second thing I just want to say, you know, many of you, I think, have been so gracious in your giving to the Lord. And it's not about the dollar amount. Did you give a big check or, oh, I only had a little bit to give. The widow's might. She gave all that she had, but she gave it joyfully to the Lord. And I know a year or two ago, I guess it was two years ago now, or a year and a half ago, it was kind of put to you, can we keep this church open and keep it running? And over the year and a half, many of you have given joyfully and gratefully and secretively. I don't even know who gives what. And that's a good thing. But let me just encourage you and say, the Lord is honored. That's a mark of a healthy and faithful church. Giving because the Lord has blessed you. Giving not because someone's twisting your arm, but because you love the Lord and you want to see his work go forward. And lastly, and this one is kind of a a no-brainer, if you will. A church devotes itself to worship. I don't have much to say for this one because we've been talking about what worship looks like. Preaching of the word, prayer, celebrating communion. But notice when the people of God gather, there is this this indescribable, uncontainable awe. Verse 43, And an awe came upon every soul. They were praising God, verse 47, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They, they gathered for worship and, and the temple, the apostles would, would preach and, and not only Jews, but believers, new Christians would hear the word of God. It was a, a mixed audience, if you will. And then it's like they were so hungry for God's word that that wasn't enough. It's, well, let's come back to my house and we'll talk about the, what we heard. Uh, or maybe somebody had a scroll and they said, let's, let's come back to my house and we'll open our scroll and we'll, we'll have another Bible lesson. But there was just this over and over. We, we've got to feed on the word. We're going to worship him. We're going to sing praises. And, and people began to notice that. You see, when God's people are joyfully worshiping, non-Christians notice it. In fact, it, it says here that they had favor with all people in verse 30, 47. You can imagine that excitement and you're seeing this crowd gather and there's the Apostle Peter or someone preaching in the temple. And, and here's this Jewish person. They walk in and they go, wow, my synagogue service isn't that exciting where did this all come from where did this joy come from i want to see what's going on that's contagious in our culture today when you go back to work on a monday and your coworkers are griping oh, i had a terrible day yesterday all of the football games were lost all my team lost and all i could think about was how i had to come back to work and monday is the worst day of the work week and and you're just like I had a good day yesterday and I'm excited today because we had a great time worshiping God. And they just look at you and like, what, what, what's in the coffee that he's drinking this morning on a Monday? But that becomes contagious. And that's something that, that only the Holy Spirit can, you know, the, the pastor can get up here and preach and teach, but 
But that awe, that wonder, that has to be caught by all of us. That has to be something we pray for and something that comes from the work of the Spirit. That there's something different when we gather here on a Sunday. We're with family, we're with friends, we're with God's people. But something happens that we can't quantify. And we go out from here and we desire then to share the Word of God because something happened in our midst that's spiritual. That's what we pray for. And that's when we know the Lord is at work. We live in a day and age where all kinds of methods are told to us. This is how you stir up awe. And a lot of times it revolves around the church getting the right kind of lighting, the right noise level to the music, even put little smoke things on stage and create an ambiance. Awe and marvel. There's nothing wrong with different styles of music, but awe and wonder come not from the human things that we create, but from the spiritual things we ask the Lord to do in our midst. If we want to be a healthy church, we need to continue, as many of you regularly do, ask the Lord to work in our midst. And be patient for what that will look like. He'll, he'll work that all out in us. He'll, he'll take that apostle's teaching, that, that gospel message, and he'll stir in us new desires. And that will begin to radiate out. And pray that those kinds of things would be attractive when someone visits or when you have a conversation about about what you did on a Sunday with someone. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we walk through this passage today, uh, Lord, we just pray that there would be uh, instructions for each one of us here, that there would be a reliance on you, a dependence upon you. Uh, In some ways, Lord, six different things almost feels a little bit disjunctive at times. But these are the things you call the church to do. And so just give us a vision for how all of these things fit together and and stir up an all in us. Lord, I pray that when we worship, we would worship in spirit and in truth and that we would have a sense uh, of your presence. And that's not something that we can manufacture. That we would go out today and have a sense of, we didn't just hear Pastor Tim speak, but as he used his Bible, we heard the word of God. Not my words, even though I said some things to explain it. But we heard the word of God. And that that would produce a sense of awe and wonder and delight in us. And that that would become contagious. In your precious name we pray. Amen.